The following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. So we gave a class, it wasn't a lot of, a lot of uh, interaction, which is fine, but I just want to retain. Oh, my Anyway, so the, he writes in his book, the Chavitz Chaim states in his, in his book that um, he was once on a train going somewhere and going to his hometown, he's coming back to his hometown, and someone's sitting next to him and says, you know, oh, well, he, they struck up a conversation, and he didn't realize it was the Chavitz Chaim, he looked like a very plain guy. So uh, he says to him, you know, where, where are you going? He says, oh, I'm going to Radin to visit this great saintly rabbi, the Chavetz Chaim. And the Chavetz Chaim says, oh, yeah, you know, he's talk- he didn't realize he's talking to the rabbi. So the rabbi says, tell him, you know, he's not as great as you think. I don't know if he's worth going to. I want to go somewhere else, go to a different rabbi. And the guy gets so upset and he starts pummeling. <laughs> he starts beating him up. How could you say that about the rabbi? And he starts, you know, hitting him. So the Chavetz Chaim said, you see from here, you can't even speak evil about yourself. It's prohibited to- <laughs> Speak evil about yourself. So you have to be careful. Even about yourself, you got to be careful what you say. So, so in any case, so, so there's many laws of privacy. Like I said, just very clear in the Torah. Privacy is a very stringent matter in that sense, across the board. So applying this, this because here we're talking specifically about emails, things like that, where how does it work? Because many times people forward you emails. It's an interesting thing if you see people, you know, you become so lax with emails, you don't realize you're forwarding an email. And you know, there's a whole chain underneath of the guy before he forwarded to you, and that information you don't know if he wanted that revealed. He was having a conversation with you. He had, at the end, he had a nice joke, so you forwarded because of the joke. But there's you know, there's four emails before that on the bottom that might have things he doesn't want revealed. So you have to be very careful in that. Um, the question is, how does it how does it apply in general? Um, fit in with these laws of privacy? Can I forward an email? Can I read someone else's email? Many times at work. So people leave open their computer, or their laptop. What about your wife's email? Your kids' email? You got your kids? Yeah. They're older. They're older. So we don't regularly see their email, but... Okay. Right, so I have, I have teenagers in the house many times. Actually, my wife does. We'll talk about that. She actually goes into their email. Um, my daughter knows. She goes into their account because and I'll tell you a story, a scary story I have with my brother. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a scary thing. Um, First of all, kids with email, what you know, you know what they're doing. Used to be, well, you know what your kids are doing more or less, where they're hanging out. With email, they can be any talking to anyone anywhere, and you know, sure. it's scary. So chat rooms. So we'll talk about that soon. But the, basically, the, so the first step to understand is there's actually prohibition. Besides all these other issues, so I put down here. Um, there's two problems with revealing secrets, as I put down. So one is, it says, A, by disclosing information that was given in confidence, one causes damage to a person who wanted to remain a secret. So even by the mere fact, we're not talking about stealing business secrets or things like that, which is obviously problematic. Um, there's, the issue here is just in the fact of, of, uh, of someone wants something held secret that's private, private information. You go ahead and reveal it. So that could be in itself damaging. It's considered damaging. Number two is B. It says it's a violation of tzniut, as we discussed, modesty. Um, meaning people, there are certain things in life. It's a, it, we live in a world today of social media where there's no concept of privacy anymore. People have these Facebook pages. I mean, you wouldn't believe what they post. <laughs> oh, yeah, we, we've seen. A, so people, there's no concept anymore of uh, privacy. Officially, Facebook is supposed to be just to your friends. But I, I have, I think, 2,300 friends. I, probably only know 50 of them, but have a lot of friends. It's a, it's a joke, I'm saying. So when I post something on Facebook, 2,500 people are reading, so the concept of privacy is totally lost. Obviously, if I'm posting it, 
and that means I'm an idiot and I'm I, I don't want this to be private, but I can make the argument. I only want it to this group of friends, to my group of friends. Well, I too, I, I found that I have a personal Facebook and a professional Facebook, and they're basically ideal. Sometimes I'll have, you know, we'll have a picture of always Beth and I at someone's wedding, but everything that ever goes on there, never, I never reveal any personal. But, uh, but you wouldn't person. believe what people reveal. I mean, oh, I know, today, I know, I know. I know we use it even in hiring. When you're, when you're hiring someone, the first thing you do is go check out their Facebook. And there's people of themselves drunk. My son-in-law you know, doesn't have a Facebook page. He's a resident doctor at the Mayo Clinic. He doesn't have a Facebook page for that reason. He doesn't want anybody writing on there to say, hey, remember that time when we were in college exactly. and we all got arrested exactly. for, for exactly. so you have to be very careful. intoxication? Not only that, I mean, I've, I've found you found so you find out so much about the person just you know, in their personal preferences, what they like with music, movies. You can tell a lot about a person just from their Facebook. Can you tell anything about us from our Facebook? Other than the fact that we're married and we went on a trip, here's a picture of the mountain. I hope not, but I'm sure people can look at it and get more information that we re that we don't realize that yeah. we've put out there. Well. So. You got the right. Anyway, so, so I'll try to speak louder than him. Um, so the bottom line is the the, the in a certain sense our society has lost the concept of privacy. We're going to talk about that also. But but that in, if you're posting on Facebook, obviously there's no privacy because you're telling people this is public. In Jewish law, once three people know about it, technically it's considered public public knowledge. Three people you know if you allow three people to be aware of it, so that's considered in a certain sense public knowledge. Right? Okay. So now. Um, so there's so there's a second part as we're saying that's near the issue, which is the modesty. We there is a concept of pri privacy is a good thing, even if it's not ill speech. It's not uh, just privacy is a very good thing. It's good. It's good to keep certain things are to be kept private. You, know, you don't need every part you had on the on the you know on your Facebook page. So that's that's the that's the second part. Okay. It's a violation of. A business to to tell other people about private matters. Now let's go to this situation with the rabbi. The woman came to the rabbi and informed the rabbi, "I'm seeing a man, not my husband." Is not he violating modesty by telling somebody? Telling oh, so a third you technically, what? If you would tell someone else about it, that is a violation of modesty. In this particular case, he felt halachically, like I said, the Torah says. A woman has an affair, she's prohibited to her lover and to her husband. Actually, that's the Torah law, assuming there's witnesses and obviously it's a criteria. But the assumption is once, if, if, if someone has an affair, they're now prohibited to live with their husband, to stay living with their husband, according to Torah law. So he felt like as a rabbi, he needs to tell the husband. That, that, was, that was his reason, well, his rationale. But, but you're right, if you would have told someone else, that's prohibited 100%. Someone else who's not, has no reason to know the information. Yeah, he couldn't tell his Right, exactly. Or his wife, even, or anyone. He shouldn't know. But specifically, the husband is who we revealed it to. That was. Um, so those are not mutually excluded. Yeah, there's exceptions to the rule, obviously. We're going to talk about okay. that. Yeah, there's no question. By the way, and this is something important, we're going to talk about that also, which is even in HIPAA, there are times that HIPAA will say you can't reveal information about a patient, but halakhically you might be obligated to. So let's say, let's say you're, you know, someone walks to your office and you, they're tested and they're HIV positive. Okay, and you know they're dating someone and they didn't tell their partner. I said, no, I didn't tell my, my partner that I'm HIV positive. So I don't know what the Texas law is, but in Jewish law, you're obligated to say something. 
because you're you, if you can say so it's based on the same verse it's fascinating in the verse itself the same verse says do not stand idly by sorry says you shall not be a gossip monger amongst your nation um, and but the next and the next verse says you shall not stand idly by while someone's blood is being shed so the assumption is what's the connection what's the juxtaposition of the two verses is this aspect that it, of course you're allowed to say lashonara you're allowed to reveal confidentialities if it's going to save someone's life and you're not only that you have to because there's an obligation to save someone's life so therefore you, if someone a patient comes to you and they're telling you let's say a patient comes to you and they're uh, you know, they have some kind of syndrome where they can't drive. Dangerous for them to drive. And they're not reporting it to DPS. You have an obligation to report it to DPS as a physician. Um, I don't know, again, I don't know the Texas state law with that. I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know where that fits in, but I do know that when I was studying the ethics part of HIV, is that you, in, in tech, I'm quite sure, at least for sports medicine, if a kid comes, you know, a college athlete comes and he test him, we find out that he's HIV positive and he's a wrestler. Oh, he's got obviously physical contact with his opponents, you know, from mm-hmm. other schools, and uh, there's lots of physical contact in wrestling. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't tell anyone. You can't tell the trainee. You can't tell the. Right, so the problem is HIV. There's so the lobby is so strong. Yeah, that so you cannot say anything. But I really don't know what the medical obligations if someone has a partner or multiple partners. I would probably err on. I, I mean, from trying to pr- protect myself right. and my so family. That's the problem. You're scared of losing your license. If you violate the HIPAA laws, you can lose your license. Right. I would probably say nothing. Of course, I don't regularly encounter those things. Never have. And okay. I've had lots of, now we don't even test for HIV. So, Unless there's a reason, there's a, a compelling reason to test for, you think someone has clinical AIDS, but if someone is AIDS, happens to have you're AIDS, in your AIDS. profession, the, like you say, it's not so relevant. You know, it's not, the but point is, but the point is, what I'm showing you is that there are times that halacha, Jewish law, will require you to reveal confidentiality when HIPAA will say you can't. So that becomes a conflict. What do you do there as a physician? Do you reveal the laws? Do you, reveal, do you reveal the confidentialities and risk losing your license? That's a scary thing. So you're not obligated to risk your whole livelihood um, in most cases. Meaning if there's a chance you lose your license, you don't have to take that risk in Jewish law. But, uh, but there are cases that you might, I mean, so, the, so it's, it's a complicated. So if we have somebody, if a physician were to encounter a patient who was HIV, and he had a partner, or, or more, more likely he has multiple partners, mm-hmm. Well, if it's multiple partners, you can't tell anyone you know who it is, but he had a partner. Oh, let's say you're aware of the partner. And you're aware. Yeah. So you are, are you, so halakhically, you are obligated. To reveal that, yeah. True. Not only a physician, meaning if I'm, as a rabbi, people come to me many times, they're dating this person. And I know this guy has a communicable disease. So as I would have to let that person know okay. if, if they're, if, assuming that the other person didn't let him know, because that's dangerous to them. Assume with me now that there was a, that this situation occurred. And would, now there's a rabbi who's a very pious, a, a, a pious and a holy, not a rabbi, but a physician. No, who's a very holy fellow. You know, he's, he's, he's 
he, he's very ethical and he wants to follow all the rules. Mm -hmm. How would he or she manage this to manage this? So we say when there's a conflict between HIPAA and right with a contract between HIPAA and your religious obligation. So it's a problem. So so again, like I said, they talk about. I mean, the problem is if you as a physician, more it's more in psychology. I've heard the question. Meaning, so let's say he's a school psychologist. And the kid comes in the high school, the kid comes into the office and tells the therapist, you know, I have HIV or I did this X and X. So now if the problem is, if she, technically she has to tell the parents, the kid's pregnant. But if she does that, no kids, kids find out that she's revealing things, they're not going to come. So she's going to lose all the kids. So like, you have to weigh society versus the individual. That's really what it boils down to. As far as the individual, listen, I could save this kid's life. I could help this kid. She's pregnant, whatever the case is. I need help. But if I go to the parents, she'll never see me again. She's suicidal. Or no other kids will see me. And no one else right, will exactly. So, so you have to weigh the individual versus society. So that's the only time you can, society wins out over the individual. Well, how will the halakha, so the cases, how will if, let's the halakha, say more, from the point of view of halakha, how can you explain that? No, so how can you? How can you? Uh, no, so I'm explaining because even in halacha, there's a concept: society wins out over the individual. That's number one. The other thing is, you don't have to lose your whole life to perform a mitzvah. So normally, there's a cap on a mitzvah, which is one fifth of your net worth. You only have to spend on a mitzvah, at least a positive commitment. I'm talking about positive commitment. Okay, so meaning, let's say I need to buy tefillin, but it's, I can't afford it. It's more than a fifth of, of my net worth. So I don't have to buy, I'm exempt from tefillin. Law is, if, if the mitzvah will cause a loss or cost you more than a fifth of your net worth, you're exempt. I didn't know that. That's okay, it's a nice loophole to know. Well, so now, I guess now we don't have to go and redo the bride's rule. <laughs> so now, well, the I issue becomes... Already, because I was planning to decorate, I had a decorator and so everything. The, uh, the issue now becomes, so let's say you're going to lose your medical license if you do this. So then that's a major law. You can lose your practice. So that, that's really, that, would may, that formula might be a deciding factor. Meaning if, if there's a chance I can lose my license by revealing this, even though it's going to help someone, and I'm obligated technically to reveal it, but if it's more than, I'm going to lose, lose my practice, is more than a fifth of my net worth. So then I'm not obligated to do it. So that's another interesting so angle. We, we have a take home. We never from this meeting, from this this meeting. We one, one this is all interesting, but more than but a practical never forward emails anymore. So we'll get there. So now, so I just want to. I'm going to run out of time, so I want to get to. So it says here, so it's a fascinating thing. This is, there was a guy named Rabbeinu Gershom. He lived in Germany, I believe. Um, he was a leader of, of the Ashkenazi Jewry in in the early, like it says, nine, he died. He was born 1960. 1040s when he lived, and he he listed he authorized a bunch of what we call cherems. Cherem means bans, okay, that he instituted for for the Jewish Ashkenazic Jews at the time. Amongst them was he specifically said it seemed like at the time there was a lot of people going. It was the beginning of mail, the concept of mail sending letters, post, and he people were reading other stealing people's business. People, I think it was before mail, but people would send. Let's say you had a business deal, so you'd send your contracts with messengers going overseas, whatever the case was. And then people were reading the contracts and stealing the business. So he issued a, a specific ban on reading other people's correspondence. 
at the time. Again, this is obviously before email, but in, in written letters. So people would send contracts and letters. So he issued, because it seemed like it was a problem at the time, he issued a specific ban, was known as a cherem, is known as cherem de Rabbeinu Gershon, where he, he, he prohibited and banned um, reading other people's private letters. He, by the way, another thing, he prohibited at the time polygamy in the Torah is now prohibited. Torah doesn't prohibit polygamy officially. But he, f- at the time, he, he the prohibited polygamy. See, this is, right, uh, this, this is uh, something you'd be in, you're interested in. What? I would just think she's interested in women's issues. Yeah, so the other thing is, he actually, about, he has a list of things. Amongst them were polygamy. Also, according to the Torah, a man can divorce his wife against her will. That means, um, if he's, the Torah says, you know, if he, whatever the case is, whatever reason he wants to divorce her, he can write to get, he answered the, the document of divorce and she's divorced. Even if she, does, she doesn't want to accept it. He didn't have to, he didn't prohibited. Have to sign that in the days Yeah, she still doesn't sign it, but she has to, has to be willing. Meaning, today, the law is, based on him, the law is that a woman has to willingly also want the divorce. The husband can't divorce her at will, she has to be on board with the divorce. Another fascinating thing. He has a lot of fascinating laws. Oh, we um, will. Polygamy, by the way, just even, it's interesting because he was Ashkenazi. You know the difference between Ashkenazi and Sephardi. So Sephardim were not bound by his rules. So, for example, polygamy in the Middle Eastern countries was still practiced. Still, even when the state of Israel was a big problem, the state of Israel was founded in 1948. You had these people coming from Yemen, Jews, Moroccans, that were coming with multiple wives. And, and it was a problem. They were coming to the state of Israel. And so in Na- Israel didn't pass a law, I think it was 1952 or 1954, prohibiting polygamy. And, but the way it worked was if you, you were grandfathered in, if you came with multiple wives, they let you keep, the, keep your wives. That's, that's an interesting, interesting. So The issue is, is that the Ashkenaz Jews, our ancestors, thought these things through almost over a thousand years ago. And when the rest of the world was still swinging from trees, and it still is. Yeah, no, Utah is still. And it still is. <laughs> it's like so, this. Is, this yeah, is no. So this, he was amazing in what he did in these specific bans. And the, the law was: if you violated the ban, you were excommunicated. You were ostracized from the community. You weren't allowed into the synagogue. You weren't. You know, that's the way they enforced it. So that's what's called a chair. Stop explaining. It to okay, me. but this is like the whole thing. Everything He's that a, happens in the family court downtown uh-huh. comes from this man. Yeah, could be. Okay, so now the question is, so now let's just apply this to email. So, uh, so there's a few things. So first of all, it's interesting. He, for some reason, he only gave the, he officially, the ban was enacted for, two, for it says only until the year 1240. So I don't know why he did that, but for some reason he only enacted the ban for around, you know, whatever it was, a thousand years or something like that. However, the overwhelming opinion is that the cherem is still applicable throughout time. That they renewed it was renewed after the ban was over. They renewed it, so it's still applicable. It's brought in the code of Jewish law, all his bans. So now the question is: so obviously this would apply to email too. Um, email is a private correspondence. So to read someone else's email would have the same issue. You'd be violating the same cherem of Rabbeinu Gershon, which is reading private correspondence. But so this, so this is where I get to the exceptions. So um, one exception they talk about, they discuss, is I guess with the advent of postcards. So obviously, if I'm sending a postcard in the mail, 
Right, the postcard is open, the correspondence is open, right? Pe the people still send postcards? Very rarely, <laughs> but you still see them, yeah. yeah. Right, once they you, you sell them, you know, in these in the, in cheesy the shops, store, right? Yeah. Cheesy cheese stores in, right. the, in the islands. The kids do, like, like when the kids go away, they, they, uh, they'll send an email. So, um, hello. How are you? Good, how are you? Are you Just joining us? Hello, how are you? How are you? I'm good, how are you? Who is she? It's Monica, Monica Wolf. How are you? I'm doing fine. Let me go show my child where to go. So, so anyway, so the point is... Took so me a second What? Took me a second to remember. So, um, so the point is, so it's clearly, so the exception, one exception they discuss is postcards. They, they, what they discuss is actually not a postcard. Initially they discuss, let's say someone threw out their mail. It's in the garbage. So the assumption is, again, they lived in close quarters. So if it's in the garbage, and it's all, obviously they don't care about the privacy. Because if they were concerned about the privacy of their, of their correspondence, they would have destroyed, destroyed it. it. Just like today, you know, if, you don't, if you don't shred it, then uh, listen, it's your fault. Today you got to shred everything, right? That's so, this, this are you guys taking the class? Yes. 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 A private class? Yes. Not you private. You can join us, Monica. <laughs> I'm teaching Sunday. Oh, okay. What's your class? Ethics. Ethics of email. Ooh. Uh, we, we, we're on a time clock, so either come in or come in. Which oh, are you teaching? Yes, this is Rabbi Grossman, Monica Wolf. I thought you were waiting for more. No. Okay. Okay. So, so, um, so that's what they discuss. So the assumption is, if it was thrown in the garbage, they say, then it's no longer private. The fact that it's in the garbage, obviously, it doesn't mean you're looking, you're searching through the person's private garbage. It means where they had public, you know, these public dumpsters, and they put it in. So the assumption is, obviously, does, the person doesn't care does, about does the privacy. Does our government look at email as a postcard? No, I, I, I don't think so. I don't, I, I don't know if there's private. Well, there is about employers. They talk about employers reading employees' emails. So we'll talk about that in a second. Well, you know, that there's, there's laws if, about. If there's a letter that comes to you and the police happen to be investigating you for, uh, for oh, some kind of criminal, they can't go open your letter unless they have a warrant to sign yeah, up. So by warrant, they yeah. can't open your. Email. Email. No, you open your yeah. mail, your letter. No, you can't. But I think that the email is looked at like a postcard to the government. So the government. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. No, they, they don't have a right. They need a warrant to they go have into, to your, have a warrant to into your, your device. Email. If somehow they can maybe grab it off the internet, I don't know if that, you know. Out of the cloud. Yeah, right. they can, I, I think mean, they can get it out well, of the like cloud. Well, like there was a whole issue of Snowden. Did he have a right to, like, he basically took all the emails and released them? That's what he did. I mean, the. Snowden, the other guy, the guy in Russia. Right, Snowden. And Snowden's the guy who's yeah, basically, the one, yeah. uh, no, but there's the other guy, WikiLeaks. Yeah, WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks, basically what he does is steals emails. He's oh. also a rapist. Yeah, steals email, yeah, besides the point. He steals emails and reveals the information. Um, he says he's doing it to save the world, of course. So, so we'll talk about that. So he says a postcard is clear to the person has no expectation of privacy. So I'm sending a postcard through the mail, you know, and I'm writing whatever I want. Obviously, I know the guy, I remember. The mailman. Right, when I, when I was growing up, we, my parents had a friend who worked in the post office, a Jewish guy, he would, he would always, he was a very funny guy, he would always get all the jokes, like the Reader's Digest jokes, like a month before we got him, he would come and tell us all the jokes, because he'd sit in the post, he reads like, all the mail. Sounds like somebody I knew growing up. Okay, so, I wish those so, you know, the, so the, obviously, you know, if you send something in a postcard, everyone in the post office is going to see it, people are going to see it. So obviously there's no expectation of privacy. Wish they were still here, those folks. 
that's a good, a good fault. So, uh, so unless explicitly it's stated otherwise that this is private, then you don't have to assume privacy in a case like that. So the question, was, and this is my question, is how would this apply, you know, at work, right? When your coworker leaves their cubicle and they leave their their computer open, or or you're in Starbucks, right? You know, and today Starbucks they have the counters. The guy next to you is reading something. You know, are you allowed to, you know, look at it? Or on an airplane, this happens a lot. Now they actually sell privacy screens. Right, Airplanes, yeah. you can put it on your screen and can't see it from an angle. But I'm always a little uncomfortable when I open my laptop on my on the airplane. Uh, you know, I'm always a little uncomfortable. It's not that I have nothing, anything to hide, but, but still, still yeah. I, you know, I don't need this guy reading uh, my stuff, right? So, so it's interesting. But the, again, the assumption is, I want to say, at least this is my own theory based on what we're saying is that it's the same thing, meaning just as a postcard, the assumption is there's no privacy. So if you're sitting in Starbucks on a counter and there's 50 people behind you on the table, obviously you can't expect privacy. No, the assumption is there's no privacy. If you're in your office and you, know, and you leave your computer open, it's a cubicle, so you don't expect your, your, um, your uh, co-worker to come into your cubicle. Let's say it's an open, you know, it's an open office where there's 15 desks, you're sitting in a newsroom, whatever. So the, again, if the, it's a, the assumption is if there's no assumption of privacy, then you have to assume that there there's is no, no obligation of privacy. Because not only it's you assume there's not, because you know there's not, and therefore, when I want to look, read your computer now, so I understand so you that you didn't, you had no assumption of privacy. Your wet coworkers, so you leave your email open and you walk <coughs> out to the washroom or to the water cooler. You have to assume that I'm going to look at you read that. Yeah, again, if it, I, I this is my own theory. It's, it, that's it's an open space. If it's in a cubicle. I'm not assuming someone's going to walk into my cubicle to look at my email. Well, you're all, you have a private office, but obviously, if you live and you work in an open space, that's the assumption you're going to have a picture. Right? And called Starbucks. So it's like a postcard. Right, so Starbucks, exactly, or an airplane. It's the same thing. I, I, if the guy went next to me, you know, sometimes you're too cheap to pay for the movie. The guy next to you is watching <laughs> the movie, right? So you're watching it, or he's on his laptop. So, you, so there's no assumption of privacy here, right? So. Um, so that's what I want to say in those cases specifically, meaning if it's an open laptop with not in a cubicle or a Starbucks or an airplane, then there's no, you're allowed to read it, okay? Now what's interesting is there's a, what they don't talk about is even in the postcard, what about the sender? Some disagree because you're right, the person sending it obviously has no uh, expectation of privacy, the fact that he wrote it, but the receiver, he didn't decide to send it and send the postcard in the mail. So he might not want people reading it. So okay. some people let's, disagree let's, and let's, say, therefore, I still can't read it because the receiver has no, so knows the email, it's the same thing. So let's the guy is leaving it open, he might not have no expectation of privacy, but the person so who is receiving I'm going to send, <coughs> I send an intimate postcard to my wife. Uh, I don't care that somebody reads uh, You obviously something. made a decision, you have no expectation of privacy. I don't care that she somebody might be embarrassed. reads, uh, something that should be personal, but she does. Right, so she might be embarrassed. Exactly. Right, That's the so point. that means that, I, so I gather that means that we should not, and I'm not allowed oh, so that, to disclose. I just put that as, a, as, a, as another opinion. I'm not allowed to disclose information that no, would be you, considered, uh, uh, it would be a violation of census to, uh, to 
disclosed something that was about private matters, and I thought that... No, you, well, you have no problem. You couldn't disclose it. The problem is she is the recipient, but and I'm she's not happy about it, so then I, I still can't read it. So from your part, I can read it. You clearly don't care the fact that right. you sent it to the mail, but I don't know if she cares. Therefore, it still might still be a problem. Yeah. Might. If I say I that, I thought she was, will look beautiful in the fishnet stockings. <laughs> she may not want... Okay, if that would be that know she did. might not want people to know that. Right, exactly. So I shouldn't have write, I shouldn't write that then. Well you're an idiot as a husband. I'd be an idiot as write. a husband. <laughs> but it does I don't know if you violated this law. Well, the I'm, question is does she mind? So it's I'm, not you cannot mind, but the question I'm not is she disc- discussing whether or not she wears the stockings, I'm just using that as No, I am just saying the question is does she mind? So so if she minds, so that's what this other opinion is saying. So even discarded mail, meaning because the first opinion said discarded mail, obviously there's no expectation of privacy. Yeah, but that's only from the receiver then. But the guy who sent it might not he might still want privacy. He doesn't know you're going to discard. Same thing, if I'm leaving my email open on my day, she sent you a lovely email at work, and then you leave it open on your desk. So you, so you leave it open. That means you have no expectation of privacy, but I don't know that she doesn't. That's the point. So, so that could be an issue. Another, other, some other exceptions are case of mitzvah. That means um, they discussed that the, the ban of Rabbeinu Gershon, that he said it's prohibited, shouldn't, cannot prevent someone from fulfilling a mitzvah. So for example, um, he discusses divorcing a wife against her will. That's the case, the example the, the Code of Jewish Law discusses. Is he prohibited that, right? He said, you can't divorce a wife, but let's say, and it's, it's a sad situation, but um, tragic, meaning let's say the, the law is in Jewish law, if a, if a couple doesn't have children for 10 years, then they're allowed, that's the grounds for divorce. Because there's a mitzvah to appropriate, there's a mitzvah to have children. So therefore, if the woman couldn't conceive for 10 years, at that point, he has a right to divorce her, so the Code of Jewish Law says even against the will. Might be cruel, but what is in that situation, even against the will, because he has an obligation to procreation. So he can, it's been 10 years they've been trying, can't have children. So that says even though there's a ban to divorce a woman against the will, in that situation he can do it, even if she says no. So why? Because he has to perform a mitzvah. So that means any time, let's say, so the same thing we could apply here, meaning if let's say by reading someone's email, I can prevent them from doing, or get them to do a mitzvah, prevent them from, from sinning, so then it sounds like you'd have a right to do that. So I'll give you an example, because it sounds scary. It doesn't mean you can go into people's emails looking for stuff. It means, so this is a case I mentioned before. I have a friend who, he, he actually, he had a daughter was 14 or 15 at the time, and he would periodically check, or I think she maybe left it open, or I think he would periodically go into her email. And he notices one day she's having a correspondence with this guy in New York. She had bought a plane ticket, a total stranger, an adult, and she had bought a plane ticket to meet this guy. She was 14. She was flying to New York. She bought her own ticket. He sees this in her email. She's having this correspondence. He basically caught her like she was going to leave the next day, whatever the case was. He had a, I, don't know, I don't know how much later. She had a ticket for it. The point is, so obviously, in a case like that, where you're suspicious of your teenage child is doing something which could endanger their life or, or whatever the case is. So there's no question you're allowed to read their email. That's what I was mentioning before. My wife does it. It bothers me. Actually, my wife goes into my daughter's email. She knows she's going to... She told my daughter periodically she does. This way, the kids know they have a look at. The problem is today the kids are smarter. They have another email that the parents don't read. <laughs> so they have multiple accounts. So, so, But the point is in a case like that, obviously that would also be okay. There wouldn't be a question. So you know that's what it, and they, I found the response where 
a Rajba who lived, who was an early authority, lived in the um, 1100s. He says, speaking about another Chayim Rabbeinu Gershom, says that if one is concerned that his child may be violating the Torah with his actions, then even Rabbeinu Gershom would admit that his Chayim, the, the ban, is not applicable, and one is permitted to read a student or child's email correspondence. Okay, so it's meaning if there's a problem with your child, then you need to find out. So he explicitly permitting reading their correspondence. He obviously wasn't talking about email, but any correspondence. Um, all right, the other thing is, is the monetary loss, let's say, which could be problematic legally, but I'm saying, again, going, let's say, you could prevent the monetary loss to you or someone else, you have a right to violate the ban, read someone else's email. Okay, and, and then we mentioned before, like, school administrators, so this is an interesting question, what about employers? Um, so you have an employee who you think is spending a lot of time sending emails or saying something negatively about the company. We had this once in an organization I worked for. I think we suspected one of the employees was bad-mouthing the, the company. So are you allowed to go into their email looking for the, you know, the emails they sent out negative about the company or like we're saying school administrator? You know, how does that work in that situation? Um, so what I understand, so the way it works is what I found out then legally, and I think the same halacha would apply, is of course if, if you have, if you own the domain, that means the email server. So let's say your company has uh, MarkSanders.com and you're, you, all your employers, you know, let's say your secretaries, your nurses, are all using that email, their correspondence. Technically, you have a right, you own, you own their email. I think legally even, meaning especially if you own the server, usually there's a waiver that, the, that they have to sign before saying that you have a right, that you own the email. But so in that case, I don't think it's a question. An employer has a right to go in and search the email. Now it's the question that ethical. email content belongs to me. Yes, unless if the, the server belongs to you. But what if, they're ch what if they bring up their personal email account, their Yahoo account? Right, so the problem whatever. is if they're using their Yahoo account, so that's already more legally that's a problem. You have no right to go. Let's say you have access, you, you know their password. It's you your computer. Then. Again, if they sign the waiver, if they sign the waiver, then you know, put that in their contract to begin with, which many employers do that today, especially the big companies, you know, the big corporations do that. You have to sign a waiver saying we can access your computer, your email. So, so then, of course, you're allowed to. The question is, if they didn't do that, uh, they didn't sign a waiver, so that's going to be more problematic. Um, again, according to halacha, it might be that uh, if there's a loss involved, you might be allowed to do that. But legally, that's going to be a problem. But if you own the domain, according to halacha, halacha would say that you, that you own the email. Yeah, I mean, if you own, you own the server, not the domain, if you own the server, yeah, technically that, that shouldn't be a problem. But Again, I'm not an attorney, I don't know. Well, basically, the server, well, from the server means, yeah, right, meaning you, you, that, right, our that, domain, that like our sandersclinic.net. Right. I mean, so I, I have BMW right. at sandersclinic.net. And you're all, all your employees. So if somebody, email, right, somebody yeah. sends an email on to from, Michael or to well, Keith Michael on Sanders Clinic. Sends Keith at K Burton. K. Moody at SandersClinic.net sends an email somewhere. We have the right to look so at it. Yeah. Okay. Right. So one, one last thing, and then we'll finish up. It's a fascinating thing. Where it's very relevant to politics. You look at the back thing. This was a case, actually, where if you look at the bottom, Obama went to Koto. Um, this is right before he became president, actually. He went to he visited Israel, and there's a custom where you put a note in the wall. Yeah, have you been to Israel? No, been? but yeah, I've, seen, I've seen... Mark, when are you going to yeah. take it to Israel? We're going to go maybe this summer. Okay. 
Um, so, uh, so you take there's a Open custom the take a note. When this drawer is gone, <laughs> take a note and you put it in the wall. Right. So it's a custom. I'm not, I'm not sure if this custom has validity. If there's a real source of it, but that's a custom. So there's thousands of notes in the wall. So when Obama came, he actually wrote a note, and you see it there. It's on the stationery. It's on King David Hotel stationery. Actually, beautiful prayer. This is the prayer. It says, "Lord, protect my family." And me forgiving my sins and help me guard against pride and despair and Obamacare. No. Give me the wisdom to do what is right and just and make me an instrument of your will. So someone, it says Yeshiva guy, after Obama left the wall, took it out and and it was published the next morning in the Israeli paper in Marib on the front page. They published the note. Okay, so the question is obviously it says and it says the rabbi was very upset. Rabbi of the Western Wall, if you look at the bottom, paper reports that the note was taken by a Shiva student at the wall at the time, a mark of how virtually nothing remains private. Rabbi of the Western Wall, also known as the Wailing Wall, condemned its publication. So the question is, so I, I want to propose as a fascinating thing that sometimes as a public figure, you, your, your level of privacy, you, you don't have the same expectations of privacy. Okay, so there's a, there's a fascinating Gemara. I like this one. It says, it says, if you look at the top, the Talmud says like this. It says, Rekiva once said, I followed Rabbi Yeshua, his teacher, into the bathroom. I learned from him three laws. And he discusses what laws of, of basically, uh, there's certain laws even applicable in the bathroom. Judaism covers every top. All right, so he says, I, I learned three laws. But now he says, how could you have such nerve? Right, you go where the king goes alone. You went in with your rabbi to the bathroom. So he says to which Rabbi Yeshua responded, it too is Torah, and I must learn it. Everything is, in, in Judaism, every aspect of your life is Torah. I mean, how you tie your shoes, how you go to the bathroom, right, your, your relations with your spouse, it's all codified. So Rav Kahana, that's what it says, goes out to say, Rav Kahana hid under the bed of his teacher, Rab, to learn from his sexual relationship with his wife. When Rab found out, so today he'd be arrested, right, <laughs> he'd go to jail for that. But uh, he says, when Ralph found out what he had done, he scolded Rav Kahana, to which Rav Kahana responded, it too is Torah, it must learn. He has to learn how to treat your wife. It's bad too, that's also Torah. Okay. <laughs> so the question then becomes, um, so in other words, what you see from here is that as a leader, political leader, whatever the case is, community leader, there's a lower expectation of privacy. When you, ha- when you lead a public life, so you, clearly everything you do, I mean, we know that the president today, politicians, everything they do, you know, even in private, ends up becoming public. You know, today you have, forget, you know, you have Hollywood stars. You know, Kim Kardashian, every time she sneezes, you know, it's on the news. Right? It makes TMZ, uh, you know, they have all these websites. That's all they do. They literally walk around with a camera following these people. So therefore, the expectation of privacy, again, the obligation to, to respect someone's privacy is only as much as the expectation. So since in those situations, like Obama, I'm, I'm assuming that he probably understood his note's going to become public. You're putting a note in a public wall, eventually, you know, the President of the United States, it's going to become public, okay? So, so therefore, the, therefore, I'm not sure there was a violation. Listen, the guy, it's not nice, it's not ethical, maybe. But as far as legal, the halakhic violation, if the expectation of privacy is, is, is understood for a public figure, and it's a good thing, by the way, because we need to know that part of the, it's interesting in American politics. Um, we, we look at, you know, with Clinton, we say, oh, listen, you know, what he did in his bedroom is not, re- it's not related to how he runs the country. But it's not true. I mean, that's a mistake. In Jewish Judaism, we view, there's no, there's no separation between private and public life. If you're cheating on your wife, the assumption is you're going to cheat uh, on the country. There's, if your ethics are lower in the bedroom, your ethics are, are not going to be good. There's no, there's no separation of public and private life. So there's an important concept which I think you see here. So every aspect, the public figure, 
has no privacy so in a certain sense. Obviously, again, you have to respect the privacy. A public figure has no pri has no privacy. Okay, but that's not the same thing for private figure. Yes, is that? Yeah, we're agreeing. I'm just saying there's a different standard for public figures. And this is based. This has a halachic. Uh, That's what I want to say. Based on basis. this Tom, which is that this, this guy hid under his rabbi's bed. We don't try that at home. <laughs> That's very cute. I like Thank you.